Healthy Feed. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Finally got me on to the podcast after more than 12 months. Well, it was it was more a uh, marriage of convenience, really, because we lived together. It still took over 12 months. <laughs> we had a backlog. No. So we originally had this idea. Well, well, I had this idea, actually, when Rose was born. Yeah. yeah. And I thought, oh, we're going to head into this period where there's going to be a lot of breastfeeding, right? And, you know, the, when the new babies need to breastfeed every two to three hours, sometimes they take up to, you know, 40 minutes. Yep. And I thought to myself, how do we kind of use that time and do something fun? And I thought, <laughs> <laughs> well, well, for me anyway. Yeah, how do we use this time? All this free time we have for... Uh you know, feeding these babies. <laughs> and you're captive, right? You can't go anywhere. So um, the concept originally was, how I pitched it to you is, uh, the show's called The Weekly Feed, and we literally have a talk in however long it takes to breastfeed Rose, right? And um, I think we did it once when we were at the hospital after we gave Oh, her. did we? Yeah, we did it on like little um, wireless mics. Do you remember? I have no memory of that, which probably just goes to show what my state was at the time. <laughs> so we did that one talk and I thought that was quite funny. But uh, then obviously it just was wild. It was chaotic and the last thing we wanted to do was just try to record a podcast. Survival mode, total yeah. survival mode. There's no way we would have been recording a podcast. But it's a great concept, right? Like we, So we're actually talking while you're breastfeeding. Okay, I don't remember that being part of the brief either. I thought it was just a, a weekly feed where we talk about a different topic. I didn't realize I had to be breastfeeding at the same yeah, time. Yeah, and then this I was pitching to you to whenever we have a guest on, they also have to be breastfeeding. So This is completely not what was originally <laughs> pitched. Anyway, so the first time we did it, she actually was breastfeeding and you were all mic'd up and things like that. Uh, but then, you know, that period of when Rose drank for 20, 30 minutes was like gone in a in a flash and then she only really, maybe oh but she, quite quickly she she moved into only feeding for like eight to ten minutes right aside or whatever and so it was yeah the window was gone and and so on so here we are now over a year later because it's the length of the breastfeeding that was really stopping us from starting this podcast <laughs> <laughs> sure here we are a year later um rose is now put down to sleep we are nervously watching her through a baby monitor mm -hmm. um, and giving us a chance to talk. And originally wanted to do this to actually talk about the journey of pregnancy and bringing up and the early years of life so that we don't lose all the stories and we, we check in on it. But a year later and we found out another surprise. Yes. That we, we will have a second chance to, to do that. I'm not entirely sure I want to be recording while breastfeeding, but yes, we do have a second chance because we <laughs> no, are <I> expecting. <laughs> I don't mean the, the breastfeeding part, but we have a second chance to, to relive it, you know, and ex experience kind of how we're going through. So um, for the listeners, you are... 22 weeks? 22 weeks. 22 weeks. So um, a bit of a surprise? Yeah, it was a bit of a, well, we think... Well, we know we wanted a second child. And so we just got very lucky. Things kind of happened quite quickly for us. So we know that we're very fortunate in that way. Um, everyone obviously has very different pregnancy journeys. And we've been really lucky with both Rose and with this one that we have been very fortunate to get pregnant 
quite quickly. So um, Rose and the new baby will be 18 months apart roughly. Wow. So not quite Irish twins for those yeah. playing at home. But yeah, we've got the chance to go through it again. And so I thought this would be a great time to, to kind of document it all. So the way we're going to structure this is that every week we're going to talk about a particular topic and we're going to go, try to go from left to right in terms of the pregnancy and the birth and then the, the early months. Um, and we'll kind of share our experiences on it and obviously seeing it through you know, a mother's eyes versus a father's eyes. And at the end of each segment, we'll also talk about um, a bit of advice. So what I've done actually is I've compiled um, a series of like listener feedbacks across the board. I've used AI to scrape like a big data set around what's the most common kind of questions and things that are there. So we'll get a chance to answer one every week. Yeah. Awesome. I actually think it's better that we're doing it second time around because we have the, you know, the fortunate um, advantages of hindsight reflecting on the first time, but also still going through those experiences um, from the beginning again. And I yeah. feel like we can have as a result, probably a richer conversation around that because of the fact that we've lived it, even when we're thinking about what do we need this time around, we are so much more informed around what we know works for us, doesn't work for us in terms of the types of things that we want in a bassinet, et cetera, and so forth as well. Yeah, that's so true. I mean, I, I kind of flinched a little bit when you said we have the benefit of hindsight because I, <laughs> I don't feel like you ever really um, ever really get that in some ways because every kid's so different, but it is true. We, we are more prepared. Um, do, do we want to actually break down our kind of family for listeners? Yes, I think so. Yeah, so... We have a very unique family. We have a blended family. So we have, um, we've got actually, we will have four kids. Yes. Pause for dramatic effect because. I thought you were asking me to confirm. (laughs) (laughs) There's no more hiding anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. And it's like, well, that was another thing. When we found out we were having another one, we looked at each other and thought, oh, we just bought that five-seater car. (laughs) Should have gone for the eight-seater. Needed the minivan. Definitely. Yeah. But minivans are cool. They're coming around. Right. I feel like they weren't in style when we were buying the five seater and just in the last like six months, suddenly everyone has a minivan. Yeah. And, and the last few seats is such an afterthought to me. It's like, yes, they technically have, you know, seven or eight seats or whatever, but it's really just this weird thing, pop up seat in the boot. It's like throw yeah. your child in the boot and we'll strap them in the seatbelt. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we have, uh, yeah, we've got, so let's, let's talk about the range of kids here. So Neve and Jake are my stepkids who I love very, very much. They are the most adorable, most amazing kids and have been so fantastic with welcoming Rose into our family. So they were born out of Ryan's previous relationship. And then obviously we have Rose now between the two of us and, and the next one on the way. So it's an interesting dynamic at the moment because we have the kids for uh, half the week. And well, we have Rose for the full week. She doesn't go back. Before. <laughs> Although that was a question that Neve asked us. Yeah. Is she coming with us? Coming <laughs> when, when Rose was, when, we, when she found out Rose was, was coming along, is Rose going to go back and forth as well? Yeah, well, um, I could use breaks. So maybe that might yeah. be it. <laughs> but it's interesting in the way that uh, even though Rose traditionally should be the third kid, right? So she would get um, not as much attention, but really she has the experience of being an only child for half the week, right? And then... Um, for the other half of the week, she has, you know, these wild 
brothers and sisters that come over and she feels like she's part of a really big family. Yeah, and also give her a lot of attention and play with her a lot. Yeah. And a fantastic as well and, and really spoil her, so she's very lucky. Yeah. So we'll be talking in the kind of context of that big blended family and, um, yeah, we have picked up a few things along the way even though each kid is so different. So let's start with the, you know, right at the start of finding out you're pregnant, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that um, this time around, I guess, <laughs> how did you feel when when you tested? Yeah, so I think that the first time was a bit different because we'd been trying for a few months and so we were kind of in that routine of, okay, we're peeing on this ovulation stick to figure out if, you know, we've got the smiley face, are we good to go? Versus the other stick you're peeing on to be like, okay, are we um, pregnant or not? And you kind of do that over a few, you know, a few months. And for us, it was sort of maybe three or four months. And then we got the the positive um, two lines. So we're kind of in that rhythm. Um, a lot this, of things to pee on. Yeah, exactly. And then you got COVID tests, you got stuff sticking up your nose and you just feel like you're constantly, you know, taking tests all the time. Um, with this one, so, you know, as a lot of people are probably aware, when you are breastfeeding, there is, I guess, probably a little bit of a myth, but also probably a little bit of um, truth to the fact that you um, generally don't ovulate and therefore can't fall pregnant while breastfeeding. But as you start to, you know, wean your child off breastfeeding, they start having solids, then that's when obviously ovulation and so forth can can kind of kick, kick started. And I guess that's your body kind of saying, yep, you're ready to go now for the next one. And so as a result, for a lot of people, they can fall pregnant often without even realizing that they've started ovulating because they haven't even, say, um, gotten their first period yet. And that's sort of the the risk that you need to be kind of aware of as you start to kind of maybe pull back on, on breastfeeding. Um, for us, I had essentially had one period, so I kind of knew that I was ovulating. So we knew the risks of what was kind of happening um, in the body and that, the, that if, you know, if we didn't take certain precautions that um, obviously we we could fall pregnant. Um, but at the same time, we were away on holidays and I guess we were in the frame of mind of not really thinking it would happen so quickly, I guess, if you know what I mean. And the other thing that can happen when you first start, um, when you first start getting your period back is that things are very, can be quite abnormal and all over yeah. the place. And that's kind of, I guess, what happened where... Um, you know, I was sort of waiting for the next period to come and wasn't coming, but thinking, oh, it might be because, you know, uh, things are just, you know, a bit all over the place and had taken some tests and those tests had come back negative. Yeah, it's it's, it's a lesson in, you know, growing up, you always have the fear of God into you that, yeah, I can't get pregnant, I can't get pregnant, you know, for a woman, obviously. Or, yes. And you spend your whole life trying to avoid getting pregnant. And then when it comes time to actually wanting to start a family, you find out that actually, oh, it's actually really, really hard to <laughs> to get pregnant. To get pregnant, right? And actually, there's only a few days. Uh, well, usually for most people, only a few days where that can happen out of the whole month. Um, and then, yeah. So when when you've had a, had a child already, you kind of know that it just doesn't. You don't just fall over backwards and then suddenly yes. you're pregnant. It actually takes some some time, right? And you're rolling the dice every month, and there's a very small chance, a very small window. Everything has to go right. A lot of things can go wrong. And so you just don't expect it to to be so easy. So we were really caught off guard in that way, right? Yeah, exactly. And in a really positive way, it was, um, to be honest, I think that when I was taking that test, and I actually took another test like a week or two later, 
um, and didn't even tell you I was taking it. And it was more for my own kind of peace of mind. And when it came back positive, I must admit that I did have a sense of um, relief that it was positive because when you st- are in that state where you're sort of waiting, you start to kind of hope a little bit like, oh, yeah. maybe we are pregnant. And even though that is, you know, I think really amazing that has happened so quickly and um, a bit randomly given, you know, the fact that things would have been a little bit out of whack in terms of my body still kind of working itself out. There was definitely a part of me that was also secretly hoping that it was true. Yeah. Um, and so obviously then when I saw the positive result, um, I was very, very happy, you know, to obviously to get to get that result as well. And then I had to tell you. Yeah, I can't believe you took a test without letting me know. Not that you hit it very well. I actually like saw it in the bin. You made you didn't go to great efforts to hide it. No, no. <laughs> well, yeah, I didn't tell you because I didn't think it was going to be positive. Yeah, it's, but it plays with your mind, right? Because I guess you hadn't, at that point, you hadn't really had your period. You were just postpartum, right? Yeah. So it wasn't, it wasn't a regular thing. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. So you just like raised a big like middle finger F you to the whole tampon pad industry because you're like, no, nope, I haven't had to use you for a, for a year or two and I'm, not, I'm just going straight to the next one. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> yep. <laughs> Avoid it as long as possible. All right. Well, let's kind of like fast forward into being pregnant, right? So you, we're, we're kind of almost like halfway through now. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I want to talk a little bit about the most famous symptom, which is morning sickness. Yeah. So talk to me a little bit about how you experienced it and whether you what you thought was going to happen. Like what was your perception before getting pregnant and and how you dealt with it. Yeah. So I knew from my first pregnancy that I did suffer from morning sickness and that first trimester was a bit of a struggle the first time around. I, you know, really struggled with food in terms of only really wanted to have things that were very beige and very plain. I was very particular about what I wanted to eat um, and also feeling quite tired as well and quite sick. This time around, I would say it was even worse. Um, probably because the first time around I didn't have a baby, so I wasn't (laughs) as tired. I had also just started back at work. So I think the combination of starting back at work, um, doing the juggle of pumping, feeding, all that sort of stuff with Rose while trying to work and then also being very nauseous and and suffering kind of from morning sickness and so forth all at the same time. It was definitely a tough, I would say, six to eight weeks kind of going through all of that. And I just couldn't wait for that first trimester to be over. And I just kept counting down the weeks because I kind of knew that by the time I got to week 13, it would be okay. Um, I know I have some friends that have had really tough pregnancies where that morning sickness has pretty much lasts through the full, you know, the full kind of 40 weeks. And I was really worried. Like, I really hope that that's not going to be me. So thank God it wasn't. And then literally it's like a you know, the flick of a switch. As soon as I ticked over to that 13 weeks, I was back to not feeling sick anymore. All my energy came back. I was a completely different person. Yeah. It's that lingering nausea and you're trying to describe it to me that it's just always there. Like you never get a break from it. Um, But you haven't had any weird cravings, right? Because that's always one of the more comical, trivial things. Like people crave strange combinations and things. Um, would Would you say you had any... No, and, and first time around I didn't really either and that surprises me because I am someone who I would have thought would have had weird cravings because I quite often 
even without being pregnant, will be like, oh, I really feel like this and that's what I really, really want to have. Yeah. And so I kind of thought I would, but uh, no. Well, I suppose that you, you, when you were nauseous, you did crave a lot of like lemon, lime, acidity. Yes, and ginger. And sour things. So I think that um, I'm not sure how much of that was just wanting to not feel nauseous versus yeah. like a true craving, but I guess that came out. Yes, <laughs> true. All right. Um, and differences to last time, like in terms of, uh, you know, symptoms of early pregnancy? Just the intensity of it was worse. Um, the other thing is that as you go through pregnancy, your breasts start to get quite tender and quite sore, but I'm also still breastfeeding um, and have been trying very, very hard to wean Rose off, yeah. but she is quite adamant and if anything have, has become even more adamant about still wanting to feed. Um, and it's so, like the lolly jar now for her. She knows yeah. she can't have it, so she wants it even more. Absolutely. She never used to like really, you know, pull on my shirt and ask for it and so forth before. Now she really, really is. And, um, and I have found that really hard because, you know, your breasts are sore and they're tender. And then so when you're trying to, having to feed her on top of that, it's kind of back to the early days when you first start breastfeeding. It's very, very painful and it can take a while to get over that. It's kind of like I've gone back to that space, um, which has been quite tough. And I've been really wanting to try to wean Rose off because she's a fantastic eater. And I know that she's getting all the nutrition that she needs through food um, and doing really, really well, which is great. Um, and, you know, when I first found out that I was pregnant, one of the things I asked the GP was about breastfeeding and so forth. And I've been given um, a bit of different advice from different healthcare professionals. So the GP kind of encouraged me to wean Rose off. Yeah. You know, her thinking was that actually more it's, it's a big kind of quite taxing on your body you're essentially feeding three people you're growing a baby you're feeding a baby and you're obviously feeding yourself and it is true I think that is quite taxing on your body and, and quite tiring um, my obstetrician said that I can keep feeding pretty much all the way up until I give birth uh, she said she's seen people do it wow. um, so there's nothing in terms of you know like physically that prevents you from doing that it's it's more up to obviously yourself and I have found feeding now in the, in the second trimester quite painful yeah. and also just thinking about that transition for Rose I want her to be fully weaned off and comfortable with that obviously before the next baby yeah. arrives it is kind of weird because she is such a good eater and by far the best eater of all the kids right um to put it in perspective she'll it's hard to get the other two kids to eat meat and other things like that unless it's in the form of a chicken nugget and um, Rose will regularly just pick up two lamb cutlets and chow yep. down both of them and eat, you know, salmon and chicken and all sorts of different things. So it is a bit jarring that she's like literally hitting lamb cutlets but then still wanting milk sometimes. And it must be more than just the the act of drinking milk. It's the, the connection, the comfort, all that yep. kind of stuff. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Because, you know, we talked before about the length of time. Uh, in the morning she started really requesting a feed she feeds for over 30 minutes in bed, which is pretty crazy given previously when she was just drinking for the milk, you know, as you said, she would have been down to, you know, five, 10 minutes or whatever, per, you know, per feed. She just doesn't want to get off. I can't get her off. Um, I end up having to call Ryan to come and distract her. She just, after 30 minutes, I kind of try and cut it off there because I can't imagine there's <laughs> even any more milk in there anymore. She's got that sound when she comes off too, which is really hilarious though. 
Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, she's got teeth, right? So there is no way to get her off unless she wants to get off. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point, actually. She's got the chompers now. Oh, yeah. It's, it's on her terms. And if I try to... You know, there's a technique you can use to unlatch babies where you put your kind of your finger into their mouth to sort of try to, to detach them. Um, and she just swats me away. <laughs> she does. She's got a good slap, a yeah. pimp, pimp slap. Yeah. I always remember that really funny meme around, because uh, you know how when you see a lactation consultant or midwife, they always talk to you about the latch. And no matter what you're doing, you're doing it wrong. Yeah. Like it, doesn't, it doesn't matter how wide the baby's mouth is or whatever or you know, the special K lips or whatever they say. I saw this meme where they're like, there's these two pictures of Donald Trump when he's like saying no and he's saying something else. And it's like the examples of when he's like lips are saying no and they're all puckered up, that's like a bad latch. It's <laughs> like, open, <laughs> it's a good latch. Not that you want to think of Donald Trump's lips when you're breastfeeding. Yeah, but, thanks um, for that one. Yeah, given there's no access now, there's, there's no risk there for me. Yeah. Um, okay, we, we will go into full symptoms next time. I mean, the first episode we thought, got to set up the family, you got to set up the part of the show, so we're not going to drag it on too long. Um, but I did want to touch on the the vein situation because this is something mm. you, you kind of sailed through, and I'm using that term with uh, quotations around it, in terms of veins, stretch marks, tears, things like that for the first time around. Yep. Yeah, and um, that was very lucky that you have zero stretch marks, which is a true badge of honour, I think. When it comes to this stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. What do you think about the whole the vein stuff now, though? Yeah. So um, definitely the varicose veins, spider veins, whatever they are and they're called, are there's definitely more of them second time around. Um, you know, I think there could be a, could, a few reasons for that. One, I'm definitely less active this time around than I was the first time. So the first time around, I was in a bit of a better regular exercise routine before getting pregnant. And was making more of an effort to still get to Pilates and go to the gym and do all that, all that kind of thing. This time around, I literally am doing nothing. I'm working. And if I'm not working, I'm looking after Rose. And if I'm not doing that, I'm pretty much getting ready for bed and going to sleep. Yeah. And so I think that as a result, and that's not a good thing, right? That I need to fix that and, and work on that. It's something I'm really kind of quite the, conscious of. The only deep squats you're getting are the, getting her in and out of the bathtub. Yeah. So we, we have this giant kind of spa bath and it's just a backbreaker to completely get kids. impractical for children <laughs> for yeah. children keeps you limber whether it, you like it or not it's like a it's like a pool for rose <laughs> to be honest my mom actually um one time she was like trying to re- and, and also imagine this huge triangular spa tub but the the taps are right at the back it's <laughs> like the, the worst wall. design ever. so you have to lean over to try to turn them on right and they have pressure um problems so they scream at you if you get if you get the levels wrong it's very hard i'm just gonna jump in there to get it to the right temperature without it screaming there's like a fine art to it it's definitely like a high stress situation more than it should be (laughs) but anyway so mum was like leaning over to one time she was then leaning over to turn the tap off and then (laughs) she just toppled she just fell in she's like five foot something right and um, she just toppled right in, into the bath and she came out with wet hair and everything. I was like, what happened? It was <laughs> so good. <laughs> anyway, so it's uh, fraught with danger. Um, but, yeah, I guess you're also not doing much exercise because of your hips, right, and mm. the pain you have there. Yes, yeah. yeah. That's something I had the first time round. So I 
get quite a bad pain um, kind of in my sort of like, would you say it's your pelvis kind of area? Yeah. And, um, you know, the the physios always say to you, if you suffer from this, I think maybe 20, 25% of women sort of get it. Um, then things like walking can really aggravate it. So things that you think that would be really good to do when you're pregnant. It's probably the worst exercise to aggravate yeah. your injuries walking. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> anyway. Um, and basically they say you should act like you are wearing a really, really tight skirt around mm. your legs. So anytime you're getting in and out of the car, you need to bring both your legs in and out together, getting in and out of bed. And apparently all of those little things um, will add up. And I know that when I do it, it helps. And when I don't do it, which is most of the time, uh, it's, it's painful and it makes it quite hard. So when you are exercising and doing things, you need to be really aware of what you're doing and so forth. And so you can't just sort of rock up at the gym or rock up at any kind of exercise class and just expect them to be able to tweak and tailor it for you. I actually think that that can be quite dangerous. Um, It's really, I think, important to go to a proper exercise class. It's not going to make any of these things worse. Now, some people will be completely fine and not have any issues at all. Um, But yeah, it's just something I think that you need to be aware of. Yeah. And there's a good take around like what you should do when you have these injuries and we'll talk about that in a future episode around the, the Pilates and the physiotherapy and things like that. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, it's, uh, quite ironic, the advice to keep your legs together, given the situation yeah. uh, of how we got into this well, mess. <laughs> yeah. Um, but also then it makes me think maybe the ladies, you know, the Japanese ladies with the kimonos are actually mm-hmm. onto something, you know, shuffling everywhere. Absolutely. All right. Now we're going to move to the section of answering our question. We're going to keep it, keep it short today. Now, this particular question, so again, I've, I've kind of compiled this over like a big list of questions and stuff, and it's going to span all the different kids' ages and stuff like that, right? So this is, this is actually quite a good one because um, being pregnant, and we've actually recently just told the kids, does bring up questions of, you know, what comes next after you find out there's a baby in your belly? You would how, think. How did it get there? How did it get in there? And um, obviously with, uh, with Neve, who's a bit older and she's thinking that a bit more, um, you know, the questions that can come up. So the question is, um, the birds and the bee talk feels daunting. I'm unsure how to approach this subject with my kids. What's the best way to handle this sensitive topic? Mm. So we haven't actually aligned on this. No. Um, and we, funnily enough, funnily enough, we actually haven't had to have a very, very explicit talk about it. Yeah. At this stage, it's always just like fragments, right, of like different ideas and us correcting them or whatever. We haven't actually. We haven't sat them down. Well, they haven't no. sat us down either. That's true. You, you know, they haven't like forced us to kind of be like, you know, but why, but why, but why? It's, it's, they've always been, they've always taken our little fragments and deflections yeah. or whatever at face value. Yeah. So um, this is coming from, you know, two parents that haven't actually had to have that yet. Like the full-on talk. Yeah. But what are your thoughts? Look, I, I think it depends a lot on the age of the kid um, and making sure the way you talk about it kind of matches where their maturity and kind of understanding level are. So I know there's some people that will say you should just be really, you know, I guess kind of clinical about it. Like at the end of the day, it's all about you know, a penis and a vagina and like actually talking about the biology <laughs> of the whole thing and just like being very like, that's exactly what happens. And yeah, not to shy away from yeah. the actual terms of what's going on. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Just to be really like, you know, that 
it's, it's, it's biology and that that's kind of how, how kids are made. But I think that if I was to think about my comfort level around talking to the kids about that, I feel like I would be looking at more like a nine or 10 year old before I would want to actually talk about the biology so explicitly kind of around that. Cause I, and I, and I think it's one thing to talk about what will resonate with the kids and also what our comfort level, I guess, is sort of around that as well. Interestingly, I'm very surprised it hasn't come up more with yeah, them, to too. be honest. Um, you know, I remember when Neve, maybe about 12 months ago, was watching a movie and at the end of the movie they made a joke to say, hey, kids, ask your parents where where babies come from. <laughs> and Neve just laughed and she says, that's ridiculous. I know where babies can, can, come from. They come from their mummy's tummies. Uh-huh. And that was it. She didn't question why. She's like, I know where they come from. They come from mummy's tummies. I don't need to know any more information than that. Um, we looked out. Yeah. So, so that kind of kept us going for a while. She's been asking more recently. She has asked, I think, a bit more explicitly around how does the baby kind of get in there? Because I think she's thinking a bit more about herself. Yeah, she is. So she's almost eight. She's thinking a little bit more around as she gets older you know, what it looks like for her in terms of wanting to find a husband and wanting to start a family. And so I think she's starting to think, but how do I actually do that? Like once I decide I want a baby, yeah. how do I actually get it into my belly? Fill, up, fill, fill out a form, press something on the <laughs> app, on the phone. <laughs> well, you say that, but it's probably not that far <laughs> away, to be honest. Um, so it's she's definitely kind of getting into a place where she is wanting to understand it a little bit more. And, you know, I think she's probably at a place where she's being told a little bit more and we're probably describing the biology of it to her a little bit, but just not quite so explicitly. So, you know, there's obviously, you know, we have the egg, like as in myself as the mother has the egg and things in my body. And then there is something that you as a father needs to give to me in order to start to turn that egg, you know, into, into a baby. That kind of is probably enough for her understanding and her level of understanding at this stage, growing up, my parents, I'd be keen to know what yours said. My <laughs> parents, if they said anything at all, which maybe they didn't, I remember asking my mum about it and th- she told me that um, mummy and daddy do special cuddles. Special cuddles. Special cuddles. I remember that. And you know what? It has stuck with me. So I think it's an important topic to think about and think about how you want to address it because that has stuck with me quite vividly in my memory. And obviously it was really important what they said as an answer to that. Yeah. Um, so special cuddles was what I was told, which I think is fine. If I think about a, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, a six-year-old, I actually think something like that can make sense. But well, as they get didn't older... Didn't you have the talk with your mum when you were like 19 though? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. I was told special cuddles and there were no details <laughs> delivered since As long as there are no then. follow-up questions, we're good. Yeah, Exactly. Um, it was funny you raised that, right? Because I obviously have Asian parents, right? And it's not something I, I learned about the birds and the bee in the old-fashioned way, which is hardcore pornography. Oh, God, <laughs> okay, gross. But basically what, what I'm trying to say, though, is that it's just not it's just not spoken about because a good Asian boy doesn't have sex. So it's just not something you need to know about. But when you were so young, when you're like a five, six-year-old, you wouldn't have been thinking about that. So how would you have known that it's not a question that's appropriate to ask? Well, yeah, true. And I guess, you know, but but there's also a a different dynamic in the way small Asian kids talk to their parents as well. Yeah. Around like what's acceptable to be talk. Like I think 
it's a it's a kind of more Anglo thing that you allow kids that young to to almost treat them slightly more adult in, in nature. Yeah, like take their concerns seriously rather than my mum probably was just like pawn it off and just like you know go play or whatever, uh, and not entertain the child leading the discussion down these rabbit holes, right? If your kid asks a question, there's an expectation that you should respond to that question. Yeah. Not just That's a very modern parenting thing, I mm. guess, is what I'm saying. This idea that they deserve to be taken seriously and their their questions and their concerns matter and their consent matters. Like Asian parents don't care about any of that. <laughs> it's just like, go do your homework, right? Like, yeah, come back to me when you're gonna um so the and, and to be quite honest with you Everyone I speak to, whether they're whatever race they are, they haven't of our generation didn't really have a conversation. Yeah, like I actually don't know many people who had a conversation, right? Um, and if they are, they're quite childish versions, like you spoke about, where it's like a special hug or like mummy and daddy hug, and then we get excited, and then there's a baby kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, though, girls can start getting their periods from as early as like well, 10 years old, probably 12, 13 is a bit more around kind of the average, but even nine, 10 years old. And so there's got to be some kind of explanation around that as well and why you're having a period and so forth. Um, And I think that a lot of our parents in our generation probably left it up to the schooling system and the biology. That's probably would have been where I would have heard about a lot of the stuff at the start as well. Yeah, yeah. I um. Look, getting back to what maybe the advice yes. should be, right? Like I think that I actually I actually think that if you are lucky enough not to have to sit down and force the details onto the kid, because you really actually don't really know how much, when they ask these questions, what they really want out of it, right? So everyone thinks they want the truth or the, the full gory details, but is that really what's best for the kid? So I actually do believe that if you can prolong that until they are older, um, like obviously within a boundary, like, you know, double digits is, is like 10 or 11 or whatever, that would be ideal because then they can actually understand some of these these things, right? Yeah. I mean, to give you an idea of how quickly they grow and they change though, when, so Jake was um, three when we told him about Rose and we did a big gender reveal um, where we wanted to really get the kind of the kids involved and so we you know explained um the fact that we're going to cut this cake open and then depending on the color inside the cake whether it's blue or whether it's pink that means we're having a girl or boy etc and jake when we started cutting in the cake freaked out because he thought the baby was in the cake yeah. right <laughs> so he's closing his eyes and everything <laughs> he was freaking out thinking we were, like this baby was going to pop out of this cake you know t- for him even understanding that the baby was in my belly was a big leap now by the time rose was born he understood that and he got there but it you know in in six it took kind of six months of his kind of mental development to kind of get in place yeah exactly um and still obviously rose has no idea and you could not explain to rose that there's a belly that baby you know inside my inside my belly whereas obviously neve being older you know gets it straight away and 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 what what is the fear here i think that's the I think that there's always a bit of panic if you don't tell the kids in a serious way that it might have different, it might have detrimental attitudes to their development or what they view as sex. And I just don't think that's an issue. It's like, oh, Neve thinks that the baby is in the belly, but really we should have told her it's in the uterus, which is attached to the vagina kind of thing. And it's like, yeah. really, does that, does that matter? 
for a child, right? Is that going to mean that she's going to grow up with really warped views of of what this is? No, I don't. I don't think so. It's also a fair question for her to ask, and I think that it does deserve a good response for her because she's legitimately trying to understand. You've got this baby in your belly. How did it get there? Like, what did I have to do in order to tell my body that I wanted my body to start yeah. to create a baby? And that's a totally fair question for her to be trying to grapple with and understand when she hasn't been taught about sex and, you know, the biology, I guess, around it yet. You know what it is? I think the most important, this is one of those situations where it's not this topic. It's not the act of finding out that a penis goes in the vagina and all this kind of stuff. It's actually changing the dynamics. So I mentioned that there are certain conversations that Asian kids didn't, don't have with Asian parents, right? That's the problem. It's the, it's the fact that you want to set a foundation that when your kids have questions, when they're ready, they know that they can come to you and you will enter. You will not fob them off. You actually, you know, sit down with them and help them understand what they need. And I think that's what's changed. Yeah. Right? And that's the good part of modern parenting because it's not a problem now, but it's a problem when they start developing, going through puberty and they have all these questions and they don't ask you because they're scared that it's not appropriate to ask you. And then they get into trouble later. Yeah. And, and you know, they're so young that they don't realise the potential, you know, taboo or the um, uncomfortableness that they are potentially putting their parents in by asking these questions because, like, they legitimately don't don't know. So really important to kind of, I think you're right, keep that curiosity going and making them feel like it's a safe place where they can, you know, ask those questions. The other thing that I would say is that they have very short attention spans. So there's no point thinking to a seven-year-old, oh, okay, she's asked this question now. Okay, it's important that I sit her down and I talk her through with it, et cetera. No, she's looking for like a one or two sentence answer and then she's <laughs> moving on to the next thing, right? She is not going to give it any more thought than that. So I think just thinking about then, well, what would be your one or two sentence answer yeah, to help yeah. encapsulate it would be really important. <laughs> That's really good advice that everything past the first few sentences just go over no. their heads, right? And they... You'll need to repeat that later again and again and again. And we know that from lots of big news that we've had to give the kids. Yeah. I would say a final thing on my side on this piece is like whenever it comes to any sensitive topic with kids and trying to be age appropriate, I have this kind of philosophy that is kind of similar to Santa, right? So kids believe in Santa for a period of time. Um, and that's like a bell curve. So whenever it comes to thing, you want your kid, you don't want your kid to be the first kid in school that knows Santa is not real and ruins it for everyone. But on the same token, you definitely do not want your kid to be the last one yeah. to find out the Santa is real. When it comes to these issues, you want them to be kind of like in that middle band, right? And for a lot of reasons, mostly social reasons, right? And I think that it all evens out in the wash, but I take that approach whenever it comes to these issues around sensitive things like, you know, sex and drugs and whatever whatever this stuff is right yeah yeah all right that was a good question it was great yeah well, i mean there's probably some sock, sock puppets we can order from amazon to have the conversation <laughs> when the time comes <laughs> oh god she, she doesn't even have barbies now we could do the whole simulation with ken and absolutely not and also ken and barbie don't even have the right anatomy <laughs> in order to <laughs> simulate it anyway it's perfect <laughs> all right until next time.